Amen. That was beautiful. Open up your Bibles this morning and once again to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. We have two more sermons in this book. We began it eight weeks ago and we will conclude it next Sunday morning, Christmas morning, with a beautiful Christmas morning message. What a Christmas conclusion it will be next week. Let's ask God's blessing and help once again as we need his help, as we seek his word. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for truth. And Lord, we now ask you, as you have promised, to do your work in us through this holy word. We pray that you would call us to repentance where we need it. And Father, may you magnify our hearts with praise and adoration for the glory of your name. Father, you know everyone who's here, everyone who's listening online, and you know what needs to happen in each heart. Work, with your, work through your spirit by your word. In your name, amen. Malachi chapter 3. Last week we saw that God was once again calling the nation of Israel to repentance. This has been the whole book of Malachi. Malachi is a story of Israel 100 years after the Babylonian exile in which they had left the Lord once again. And they had grown in a great state of apathy, as we have been seeing over the last eight weeks. Last week, the promise that God gave to them, if they would repent, return to me and I will return to you. See, at this time, God had withdrawn himself from them. He He has rejected their priests. He has rejected their offerings. He has rejected them and put them under a curse. But God says, by his mercy and grace, if you will return to me, I will return to you. And we saw that the one way that they could return to God was through repentance. By, and one of the ways that they would know that they could repent is to go back to obeying the Lord as far as tithing is concerned. And we saw that last week. In verse 13, we have one final charge from God against these people. One final accusation that's been building up since the first chapter. In verse 13, God says to them, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? This word hard means severe. And they have spoken severely against the Lord. They have wearied the Lord with their words. If you remember, just a few weeks ago, we saw that the God told them that. Their words to God were severe and harsh. They have some harsh things to say to God because they're not very happy with God. But even in all that, they have the audacity to ask God again. But you say, how have we spoken against you? They're in denial, aren't they? They think they are in the right, that God is in the wrong. They have accused God of injustice. In verse 14, God answers them, and he quotes something that they've been saying to each other and something that they've been thinking deep in their hearts. In verse 14, this is how they've spoken hard against the Lord, at least one example. You have said, it is vain to serve God. This word vain means empty or worthless. 
It shows what they really think about God. You see, it's not that the people have stopped worshiping God. They have continued to worship the Lord. But they did so, as we've seen again and again, with no heart, with no passion. They really do not love the Lord. They are going through the motions. They're doing these things on a day-to-day basis because they have to. And all of it is fake. All of it comes from a fraudulent heart. This is what apathy does to us. It robs us of our joy. It robs us of our passion. It robs us of our respect and reverence for God so that we just do the things we know we have to do, but we do it just to get it done, just to get it over with. We do it because people expect it of us. This is what's happening in Israel. They're not doing it because they love the Lord. They're doing it because they have to. And they come to the conclusion where they say, it is vain to worship God, to serve God. It's worthless. It's empty. That says more about the condition of their hearts than anything. I mean, when I show up for my dentist appointment, my cleaning appointment every six months, right? I do so because I have to. How about you? I don't want to go, right? I, I despise them going into my mouth and, you know, doing all their thing in there. It's not pleasant, but I have to. I have no heart to go to the dentist. I have no passion for the dentist. I never want to see him again. I do it because I have to, not because I want to. Now, you give me some tickets to the New York Yankees game, and I'll go without any disagreement. I'll go, not because I have to go, but because I want to go. Why? Because I love the Yankees more than I love the dentist. That's just the plain truth of the matter. This is what's going on here in Israel. They're not going to serve the Lord because they love him, because they honor him, because they fear him. They're doing it because it's what they've always done. They've been back in the land for 100 years now. The temple's rebuilt. The walls are rebuilt. They're not in captivity anymore. Well, we just got to keep showing up every six months to get our cleaning. Hmm. See, the one is filled with passion and delight, which leads to worship. The other is filled with duty. We ought not serve God out of duty. I have to do this. We should serve God and worship God based on passion and delight in Him and in His Word. So let me ask you, do you show up to worship God at church like you go to the dentist for a cleaning? Are you here this morning because you have to be here? Or because you want to be here? You do it because you have to. You go in, you sit in the chair, you open your mouth, and you pray for the best. <clears throat> you come in here, you look at your clock, and, well, we've got 33 more minutes before Dan might be done with this sermon. How much more longer do I have to be here? The kickoff is about to happen at 1 o'clock. I can't be late for that. The restaurants are going to be full after church. We've got to hurry up and go. We're going to be waiting forever to go in. But I can't, I can't. if I'm going to go there, I might as well come to church. I have to be here. You see, we could fall into that same trap, my friends, if we're not careful. 
for not checking our heart, seeing what we think of God always flows out of our life in different actions. The things we say, the things we think, the things we dwell on. So do you worship, do you show up to worship God on Sunday morning because you love him and you want to honor him and serve him or because you have to be here? And yes, there is some capacity to that where, yeah, God's people have to be together on the Lord's day. That is a command of God. But it shouldn't be one that we are dragged to and forced to. And if it is, then we need to examine where we stand before God. This is what's going on in Israel. They've reached the point where they said, it is vain to serve him. It's worthless. What's the point? It's empty. And this shows their true motivation. Now, look at the last part of this verse, because they explain why they think it's empty and worthless. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? Or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? The word prophet there tells you everything. They're coming to worship God with this attitude. What's in it for me? I mean, they've had this attitude since the beginning in chapter 1. God, what have you done for me lately? And now they keep going and they keep showing up. And what's the profit? What's in it for me? What am I getting out of it? And what's very interesting here, and it's lost in the English The word prophet here is a very strong Hebrew word, which basically means dishonest gain. It's a profit you would receive from a bribe or something that you obtained selfishly or illegally. So they're thinking, like, what's in it for me? Like, how can I con God to get what I want by coming here? And I'm not, that's not happening. Interestingly, that the verses before talk about tithing and cursing and blessing. Do you think that all is a part of the context? You better believe it. What's in it for me? What's the point of obeying him? What he says we ought to do. We don't want to do it. And what he says don't do, we want to do. I mean, if we're just going to obey God, we're just going to live a miserable life. What's the point? What's the profit? Interestingly, Jesus used similar words. In Mark chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus says this very famous sentence, which I know you know. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What's in it for you? What is the worship of the holy God of all the universe? What's in it for you? Well, with that kind of attitude, you reveal who you're really worshiping. And it's not God. It's you. If you're coming with the attitude of what's in it for me, then you've just revealed to God that you're there to worship yourself. For really honest... I think we often sound like Israel in this passage. I believe we often do. When we come to church wanting our preferences to be number one, when we want our ways to be the way, when someone says, well, I didn't get a lot out of worship this morning, 
Well, that's good. It wasn't about you anyway. It's about God. It's about God. So that's the first thing. What is the profit? (laughs) Dishonest gain. Amazing, the word they use there. And secondly, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. So when they come to worship God, of course, they're to repent of their sins, right? When they repent of their sins, there's a period of mourning that they ought to go through. This is what God requires. And they were to do this privately and to sit in sackcloth and ashes. And there's various examples of that through the Old Testament. They were to do this before the Lord to show that they have a heart of repentance. So what's the point of obeying God? And what's the point of going through the motions as if we are repenting? Because they're sitting in sackcloth and ashes externally they look like they're obeying God, but inwardly they're not. Inwardly, they haven't repented at all. They look like they've repented because they're doing what they ought to do. But there's no repentance there. It's all external. This is a fraudulent religion that they're exposing of themselves. It's not true repentance. When you go to worship God and obey God, you should leave saying, Lord, I have failed you, I have wronged you, I have sinned in this way. I'm turning from my sin to obeying you. And yet they would go there to like, okay, that's what God said. Well, let's just put on a show like we're all wrong and we we know what to do and it's all in there. I heard a story one day of a, a parent and a child and the parent was telling the child, sit down. And the kid wouldn't sit down. Finally, the child said, Okay, fine. I'm sitting down on the outside, but inside I am standing up. That's what's going on. Fine, I'll obey you externally. You can see that I'm obeying you, but inside, no. You see, in real repentance, it's, not, it's just external. Real repentance begins in the heart. It's the fruit of God's word doing its work in us through His Holy Spirit to call us to genuine sorrow, genuine turning from our sin and fearing of the Lord. And this is exactly what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees, especially when they fasted, because fasting was also a command that they were to do, They wanted everyone to know that they were fasting. They wanted everyone to give them credit for their struggle for not eating food and spending time with God. And so they would make themselves outwardly look very disheveled just so that they can get the attention from other people. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 16 to the Pharisees. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that you have received, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret, and your Father who's in secret will reward you. What's Jesus saying? 
The point of obeying God is not so it could be seen externally by others, but that your inward, your heart motivations, your heart affections will be changed by true repentance and true worship of God. That's what God is pleased with, not some show you're going to put on. And that's what's happening here. And they're understanding that. What's the point? What does it profit us to obey him and keep his charge? Or to walk as in mourning. They know they're not really mourning, but they're walking as if they are in mourning for their sin. And this is how they've spoken hard against the Lord. This is what the Lord said. And now listen to the next thing they say. Because they're upset. All this thing makes them angry. Why are they angry? Why is it worthless? Look at verse 15. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So this is what they're saying. While we're over here going through our religious exercises, these bozos are living it up with no consequences. The arrogant, those are those who defy God and willfully disobey without any regard for God or his name. These Israelites are looking at those people who are sinning it up, saying, man, those guys are living the dream. They are sinning any way they want, and they just don't care. We're doing all this religious stuff. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing, but man... That guy over there is living the dream. Look how he lives. And not only that, but they are prospering. Look at their businesses. They live in nice houses. They drive nice cars. They have lots of success in this life. Man, they are blessed, those arrogant people who defy God. We're over here suffering. We're over here cursed. We're over here not knowing what's going to happen And we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, avoiding all those things. But those people don't care. Man, it must be good to be them. Apathy. They don't care about their own sin. They'd rather be one of those people who are sinning any way they want and getting away with it. They're prospering. Hmm. I mean, they really don't care either. They're just doing it because they know they have to do it. There's no true affections for God. They're doing the right things again with no heart. The right things done with no heart instantly become the wrong things with no heart. Easy. And that's what apathy is. External obedience with no internal motivation or passion for God. One of the most dangerous places apathy will take you is where they are right here. That they love their sins so much that they don't care about the consequences. That you wish you can get away with the things you want to do so bad, and when you see other people get away with it, you say, why not me? Why can't I sin like that? Here I'm stuck going in like I'm pretending to be in sorrow over my sin. And I'm suffering, and those people are doing what I want to do, and they're prospering. Something's wrong here. And that's it. That's apathy. Apathy minimizes sin in your eyes and glories in the flesh. And it takes you down a very, very dark road. 
If you're minimizing your own sin in here this morning, know this, you probably have apathy in your heart. You have no regard of God or his name in your heart. You must repent. Return to your first love as Jesus commands us to. Hmm. When you read the book of Malachi, you get the impression that everybody is a total loser, right? Like everyone is just utterly lost. The people are bad. The priests are bad. Is there anyone in this country that loves God? Like seriously. I mean, we're three chapters and 15 verses in. Is there anyone who's doing right? And yes, there is. And finally, after three and a half chapters, we get some good news. We get some good news. Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Amen. 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 Finally, there is some sanity among somebody. They're not all wicked people. Praise God. Finally, there are those who feared the Lord. And the word feared there means to respect or to have reverence for the name of God. God has said it. We will obey it because we respect him. The other people have no respect of God. That's why they do what they want or go through the motions. And that's even more than we could say for the priest as well. They didn't fear God or even care for God's name. But these people, there is a group. There is a remnant of people here in Israel that do fear the Lord. How encouraging. And what happens here? Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. They got together and said, hey, we got to do something here. God's judgment is coming to our nation. And whatever they said to one another, listen, the Lord paid attention and heard them. Whoever these people were, true repentance was happening in their hearts. True love of God was happening in their hearts. No apathy is happening here. And the Lord heard them, paid attention to them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They said, hey, we got to have a church membership here. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. we got to have some church membership. we got to have who are some real, true believers here. Who are the covenant people of God who have really believed and trusted God? Let's add them to the role. Let's add them to the membership list of people we know we can count on who actually love God. The book of remembrance. These are the people who remembered the Lord, who feared him, who honored him, who worshiped him. Here's the encouraging thing, folks. God always has a people. From the beginning, God has always had a people. There's always somebody who fears the Lord. Cain and Abel. God always has a people. 
Abel's the one who obeyed the Lord, who feared the Lord. Cain was not. God always has a people. There's always a remnant somewhere of people who fear God. And that is the doing and the mercy and grace of God himself. The grace of God to not let us all go to hell. That there are people who do care and do love him. And so they find these people in the nation and they write their names down. Not only does God have a people, but God has a book. God has a book of all the people who love him. God has a book of all the people whom he has chosen for his name before the foundations of the world were created. God has always had a chosen people, even within the chosen people. Here the nation of Israel is the elect nation of the world to represent God before the world. But not all Jewish people love the Lord, serve the Lord, as we've seen in Malachi. But even in the chosen people, there's what? A chosen people. There's a covenant people. There's those people who have, by faith, became righteous in God, and God has justified them. God has a remnant people whom he has chosen, and this will always manifest itself throughout time. You may think in these dark days that there are many people who are loving God, who are standing for God. Take heart. God has a people. God has a people around the world. And something that's interesting, and we cannot ignore this, God has a book with the names of those people. Are you in the book? Is your name written in the book? That, let's just look at this, for example. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. By the way, two weeks we start the book of Daniel. Buckle up. All right. <laughs> Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Here's one example of names being written down. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Who will be delivered? Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Look at Luke chapter 10, verse 20. What does Jesus say? Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Disciples are getting all excited because they can cast out demons. Hey, don't. That's not something to rejoice in. You want something to rejoice in? But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's something to rejoice in. That your names are written in book. Revelation 3, 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Those written in the book, guess what? Cannot be erased out of the book. Amen? You can't lose your salvation. Once God's put you in the book, there's no taking you out of the book. You didn't put yourself in the book, and you can't take yourself out of the book. Can I get an amen there? Right? Because John MacArthur says, if you, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But God has a people. And here's the thing. God is not writing the book as time marches on. God is outside of time. He's infinite. When did he write the book? Before the foundations of the world were created. This book was written before time itself began. 
God put you in his book. He knew your birthday. He knew the day he would draw you to himself. He knew the day that the gospel would be proclaimed to you and that your heart would be open to believe. Why? Because your name's written in the book. God always has a people. It's a constant truth throughout the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 49, here's another one. Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, God says to them, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Not only you in the book, but you're written on the hands of God. I've engraved you on my hands. You think I'm going to forget about you? God always has a people. And what happens to those who are not in the book? Those not in the book face the wrath of God. Those not in the book are separated from God. Cast into the lake of fire. This is what John tells us in Revelation chapter 20. And I saw the dead, John says, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. God has a book. Are you in it? How do you know you're in it? Well, have you ever believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you believe that he died for you? He was buried and he rose again from the dead? Have you believed that? And has your life shown itself by fruits of repentance? Is there evidence in your life that there's been some kind of change that you have received as Holy Spirit? If so, yes, then yeah, your name's in the book. And if you haven't, I implore you to plead, plead with you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing is the only way to know if your name's in the book. That's it. Plain and simple. That's what's happening in Malachi. Those who feared the Lord got together and spoke. And whatever they said to one another, God said, okay, write their names down. These are the people. These are my people. Look what he says. What's the promise for those people? Because remember, remember what was going on. The people who were faking it till they make it. What's the point of worshiping God? What's the point of walking as in mourning? It's worthless to serve God, right? They're looking at all the evildoers and saying, look what they're getting away with. All these poor little believers are still suffering. God hasn't done anything for them, right? Look what God's promises to the righteous, to those written in the book. They shall be mine, verse 17, says the Lord of hosts. They will be mine. In the day when I make up my treasured possession... And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. When your name's written in the book, you do not get the wrath of God. 
If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. The wrath of God, my friends, is not something you want to face. The Gospel of John says, for those who don't believe, they already have the wrath of God on them. This is what God says. But for those who are my people, for those whose names are written in the book, they will be my treasured possession. That's an amazing word God uses there. Who are his people to them, to him? Treasured. For those who believe in him, who trust him, who fear his name, God sees you as a treasured possession. You are his You are his. You are, if I could use this word, a trophy of grace. A trophy of grace. This is what the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians. Heaven, eternity, is going to be amazing. Why, Paul? Ephesians 2, Paul says this. That God's grace has come to us so that, listen to this, In the coming ages, that's eternity, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For the rest of eternity, God is going to be showing us as trophies of grace and God God will be glorified by that. Why? Because he wrote you in the book. He didn't have to write your name in the book. He didn't have to save you. He didn't have to give you grace. He's under no obligation. But by his mercy, by his grace, he gave you and I something we did not deserve. He gave to us his son. So that all those who believe in him will be saved. That is amazing. And for the rest of eternity, God will be showing off his trophies of grace. You say, Dan, I'm no trophy. I know. And neither am I. And neither am I. But what makes us a treasured possession is not who we are. God didn't save us because we're wonderful and awesome and all that in a bag of chips. God is not showing us off like like a hunter puts a deer head, right, on the wall. Like, look what I hunted. Isn't she beautiful, right? No, God is not going to be showing us like that. God is going to show us off saying, look what I've done. Look at these people. Who were they before I saved them? I wrote them in a book. And I told my son to go get them to be his bride. In the coming ages, he will show off the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's all God. Verse 18. Then God says to them, Once I have my people written in the book, and they will be mine, and they'll be my treasured possession, and I'm going to spare them. Then he says to them, these wicked people, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between one who serves God and one does not serve God. Remember, what were these people saying? There's no difference here. What's the difference between me and them? Here, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and suffering, 
Those people are doing what I want to be doing and living it up. There's no distinction between the righteous and the wicked. See, that's how they speak hard against the Lord. But then God says, in that day, when I save them by my grace and I judge you by my wrath, then you will see the difference. Then you will see the difference of those who love me and those who don't. You may think evil people are getting away with their sin. Trust me, nobody gets away with anything. Everything will be exposed. Every lie will be unfolded before creation to witness. Every murder, every secret deed, every evil thought will come before a God, a good judge who will hold the world accountable. Nobody gets away with anything. Evil people might set up a, a scheme to hold back the truth in this world, create conspiracy theories, create lies, spin a narrative. Nobody gets away with anything. On that day, when I save my treasured possession, you will see how they are different than everyone else. Not because of who they are, but because of what I have done in them. He's trying to tell Israel, who is saying that there's no difference between the righteous and the wicked. Oh, yes, there most certainly is. Is serving God in vain? Really? Is worshiping God worthless? What's the point of repenting? I'll tell you the point. You'll see the point on the day that the righteous and the wicked and that distinction is made known. No one gets away with anything. And then he says this to them. Chapter 4, verse 1. For behold. The word for is always important in the Bible. It tells you what just came before. Here's the point of what he just said. Distinction between the righteous and the wicked. What's the difference in the righteous? They're a treasured possession. What's the difference in the wicked? Look at verse 1. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will, neither, never, it, will, it will leave them neither root nor branch. What is coming for the wicked? Great wrath. Great judgment. Something that the righteous... People who are written in the book will never have to face. Then you will know the difference. And God says, I've already preheated my oven. You know when you preheat your oven and you wait for the temperature to get to a certain temperature before you put your food in there to cook it? God says, I've already turned the oven on. It's already blazing. The temperature of my wrath, the holy and hot wrath, is already ablaze. Nobody gets away with anything. You just serve me, you people. Serve me, Israel. Fear me. Love me. There's a different end for the righteous than the wicked. 
Psalm 21 says very something similar. Psalm 21, 8, 9, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. Yes, friends, there is a day of judgment that is coming. But before the day of judgment has come, today is a day of grace. Today is a day to preach the gospel. And what is that gospel? That the Lord Jesus became a man. The eternal Son of God came into Mary's womb, born as a baby, grew up, obeyed the law of his Father perfectly, like you and I should have done. He then gave up his life as a substitute for you and I. You and I should have died on that cross. You and I should have been burned in that oven of God's hot wrath. But instead, on that cross, God threw his own son in that oven to deal with the sins of all the wicked, of all those who would believe in him, and so that their sins would be completely and perfectly paid for. So that when they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God looks at them not as wicked, but as righteous. And that, my friends, is scandalous. Scandalous grace. Not fair to Jesus. But thank God that God is not fair. Thank God that he doesn't give us what we deserve. And we have a Savior. We have a Savior who was born for us and died for us and lived for us. And if you're here without Jesus Christ, I plead with you today to know that you have fallen short before God, that you will stand before him one day, and that you must give an account. And the only way to escape God's hot oven of wrath is that right now, today, that you humble yourself, you believe in his son, you trust in him 100%, nothing in yourself can take you to heaven, but you trust in him fully, repent of your sins, turn from your sins, and believe in him. This is the only way. And when you do that, you are just proving that your name's been already written in the book a long time ago. This is the gospel. This is what Christmas is all about. The God-man has come. 100% God, 100% man without sin. And he came. He came for those in the book. He came so that the gospel could be preached to every man, every woman, every child. Believe in him and you will be saved. Please, I beg you to consider these words again this morning as I have pleaded with you for 10 years almost. Trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Receive him today. Believe in him. Repent of your sins. There's a way different ending for the wicked than there is for the righteous. Don't let apathy creep in and tell you that other people are getting away with the sin that you so desperately want. No. Jesus is always better. Let's pray.
Oh God, thank you so much for your word, your holy word, which has again imparted to us such wisdom, such honesty, such self-examination. Lord, as the wicked hearts of these people have been exposed, their true thoughts have come out saying that you are worthless and serving you is worthless and what's the point and what's in it for them. But God, thank you that you have a people. Thank you that you have a people whom you have saved for your glory and by your grace that you have written down a long time ago. Father, help us to keep preaching this gospel so that those who are written in their book can be known. We want to know everyone written in that book, so we tell everyone to find out who they are. Help us, oh God. We we need you. The people in this room need you. Lord, there might be hearts in here who don't know you as Savior. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts. Draw them to repentance. Lord, give them the gift of faith to believe in Jesus Christ alone right now. Help us, O God. And thank you. Thank you for Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What a gift. What a gift of grace. Thank you. Lord, that you would remove any ounce of apathy that's residing in our hearts. Kill it. Destroy it. Remove it far from us. May your people who have fallen into sin, who have fallen into dark places, renew them again to repentance. Convict them by your Holy Spirit who resides in them. Lord, I pray that they would be miserable until they know and get right. Nothing is better than to walk right with our God. And we do so by faith through the blood of Jesus, our Savior. His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we sing a closing song together this morning. God bless you. If I could help you in any way, please see me after the service or contact me throughout the week. And if we don't see you this coming weekend because you're going to be traveling, have a Merry Christmas. But we hope to see you Saturday night. God bless you.